pro-cannabis media. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young, our regular weekly podcast here on pro-cannabis media, now PCM TV. I'm Jimmy Young, the founder of Pro Cannabis Media, and we are so happy to have a member of our We Talk News staff in our little studio chat room today, and that is Jackie Bryant from California. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super happy to be here. It's a nice way to start the week. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's been an interesting time in the cannabis space over the last few weeks with two major stories uh, breaking and happening and one being Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's five page rant about how contradictory the federal cannabis laws are. First of all, were you surprised that that came out of the blue? Yes and no. I, you know, in some ways, yes, because, you know, over the years, we've all seen a lot of like double speak and double talk about cannabis use and and what comes out in the public. And, you know, how often is it that, you know, um, a pro athlete, you know, leaves the league and come and just and oh, surprise, they're a cannabis user or, you know, John Bain or a lawmaker. This happens all the time that people are in private, much more liberal about their cannabis use and cannabis legislation than 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 maybe they would have let on before so in a way yes and in a way no it's weird it's in, in both directions it's very typical right um at the same time you know I think it would be very hard to be a black man in the United States and not feel somehow sympathetic even if you're not into it yourself to those who use cannabis and to the way that the war on drugs has harmed the black community in the United States. So it wouldn't surprise me that, you know, in in private, um, he may have been harboring these um, more progressive thoughts along those lines. So I don't know. My answer is yes and no. I, I It's like shocking, but then it's like, yeah, every, no one cares about weed deep down, actually. Like only a few, you know, wackos do. Everyone's kind of like, it's weed. This is ridiculous. So <laughs> I go and, both ways. And, and I know that you are a freelance writer and we'll get to the next big story in a second. But I found it rather interesting that a conservative judge of the Supreme Court would come out like this, make a very good case for the reason why federal laws, according to the Constitution, which he is a constitutionalist, uh, but never mentioned one word, that word being race. And you and I both know how much a factor race has played in the prohibition of cannabis in law enforcement's ability to fill their jails with people of color. And yet Clarence Thomas did not choose to go there and play that race card. That was kind of surprising to me. And yet I also know Clarence Thomas is a conservative judge. I've been talking to a few other people, African-American people in the cannabis space. They were not surprised that he didn't mention race. Were you not surprised or surprised? surprise and, and again I don't want to put words in his mouth um, but I can assume that you know he knows how it's harmed to the community over the years in private right like I mentioned but really he is a constitutionalist right and right. so you know there's this interesting intersection in cannabis where 
I think off the top, people assume that people who are into cannabis or pro-cannabis, whatever, are automatically liberal or left because, you know, drug use is kind of considered the domain of maybe more quote unquote open-minded people and this, that, or whatever, hippies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but also our drug laws are actually heavily interventionist from um, multiple standpoints and um, have kicked off you know, a global mandate for American intervention in basically any market it wants to go to under the, you know, the banner of, you know, we're combating the war on drugs. So for someone to actually be a constitutionalist or someone to be very conservative, it doesn't make sense to support drug laws because that actually goes against your personal politics, right? I think if we're following the letter of the law here. So it actually does totally square with his personal politics. And I am, personally glad to see that line of logic carrying through to the end because um as is so often with politics on whether you're on the left or the right or, or somewhere else on the spectrum like oftentimes we make contradictory declarations and statements that are just a result of our personal biases and actually don't follow a philosophical line so good on him for actually being a true conservative and being a, truly sort of anti-government intervention on on that decision or you know on that opinion rather and and still and still made some very valid points that i think anyone in the cannabis space could recognize and shake their heads at and go you know i just can't believe that we're still talking about this in 2021 and this is out there and yeah. you know we all know that the the time has come for change but none of us have any insight unless you'd like to enlighten me on exactly what kind of change that might look like in the future. Uh, as you look at the cannabis laws that are in existence now at the federal level and as someone who's covered this industry for a number of years now, uh, where do you think is a reasonable goal for cannabis reformists? You know, I think right now focusing on decriminalization is it's not my preferred personal you know focus i i and my politics tend to be more radical always in general so i'm always like let's go for the full hog but um i do think decriminalization decriminalization is a is a is at least a lofty goal at least to get it descheduled and i think that activists would do well to focus on that it, it doesn't seem, you know, I've reported a little bit on this year on cannabis clemency initiatives and how they are um, being implemented or not in the new Biden administration. And like, honestly, they're not really friendly to it and they don't care. And they do realize like, it's just not a big deal, but also like they seem actively to just not care about it. And, and in a way it almost feels punitive. It's like, you care about this so much that we're just gonna blow you off. Um, so I don't know, I, I personally don't see, um, from what I know, legalization or anything meaningful beyond decriminalization happening in the first term. That being said though, this stuff seesaws so much and I could also see overnight everyone just sort of jumping on board and that's kind of the thing du jour. I mean, it, it kind of happened in New York. I know that obviously that's been a long, a long time coming with activism. So I don't mean to, um, you know, diminish that, but the, the decision, for it to actually happen was kind of a flip of a switch. And so, I don't know, it's it's really hard to say because I also think that a lot of cannabis businesses and, and, and what we're maybe not really talking about out loud in this industry, especially in the legal states, is that a lot of these MSOs, multi-state operators and, and top operators who have lofty goals and the architects of many of these state laws, um, they 
they their business models kind of rely on cannabis being federally illegal still. They, these business models take advantage of the arbitrage created between markets when there are different legalities. And so, and also keeping things in state and not having interstate commerce. So um, I think there's more to it not becoming federal legalization than meets the eye. And I think a lot of legal cannabis businesses, honestly, and their, their quiet lobbying efforts are to blame for that. Yeah, and it, it'll be interesting to see what, what happens. I, I'm, I'm of the opinion, as the longer and longer we wait to see what this new administration is going to do regarding cannabis reform, and of course, they've got the, the damn filibuster in the Senate that they'd have to overcome, and I just don't think that's going to happen. I just wonder if it will become more uh, a tool, cannabis as a tool to get out the vote to perhaps upend some of these midterm elections uh, coming about. Because if there's one thing we have learned in history is whenever cannabis is on a ballot question, more people go out to the vote, to vote. And Lord knows, you know, the one party is trying to do whatever they can to not allow uh, a lot of people, let's just say, uh, access to the citizen's right of having a vote. But that being said, I do think that you might see something happening. You know, I had heard rumors already that Schumer, Chuck Schumer, the uh, Senate Majority Leader, was going to introduce legislation sometime in July. But nobody in Washington, D.C. is confirming that uh, on the lobbyist front. And I think that it's going to be a hurry up and wait situation more than it will be action and an actionable item. But um, we'll see. You know, the, the politics, I've never had to talk about so much politics in my life being an old sportscaster. OK, <laughs> now, now I have to look at the different parties and the different policies and all this stuff. But it's it amazing topic yeah. the fact that we can have an open discussion about this plant and the fact that there are now 18 odd states uh, that have adult use recreational programs either in place or about to become uh, legal and open up in the next year or two and that and that includes new york uh, the state itself um Let's talk about the next big story. And I think you know what it is because I think you just wrote about it. And it has to do with the Olympic sprinter. Uh, it's Shakiri Richardson, right? Am I right on the name? Yes. Um, she tests positive for cannabis, even though we know it's marijuana. And, um, and then whoever handled her PR on this did a great job. Because, I, I agree. Right, <laughs> immediately tweeted out, I am human. This is why I did it. And of course, that allows the cannabis community to jump on board and say, hey, leave her alone. You know, it, it shouldn't be legal in the first place it, as far as the World Doping Association. Walk me through your most recent uh, newsletter or column that you've written about this. And what are your feelings about her breaking a rule, even though we know the rule stinks? Right. So the thing is, is legalities are legalities and rules are rules. And so the fact that she was punished and has to live out that punishment, I, I can't say like I agree with it, but also that is what it is, right? But at the same time, it's just an, it's a no lose, pro I mean, a no win proposition. You're faced against something impossible. I mean, she faces, 
She faces so many things. It's not just the fact that she tested positive for weed, which is a pretty normal thing. And it's actually extremely normal among athletes, both professional and quote unquote amateur. That's a whole other conversation, right? Right, there's no <laughs> such thing as an amateur anymore. Exactly, whether they're really amateurs, don't even get me started. I am sure you could talk forever about that too. But, yep. um, you know, she's also a, a black woman and right. she does, you know, there, there are levels of respectability politics in here. And yeah, rules are rules, but the rules are bad. The rules are punitive. The rules are completely misunderstood and based off of bad science. And so, I don't know, it's in this weird spot where, yeah, unfortunately she does have to be disqualified. And I'm not really interested in that debate because it's like, no, obviously she should be allowed to compete, right? But then what? Then then what about the, all the athletes before right. her group are also subject to the same? It's 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 I, I you know I can't really have an opinion on that beyond it really 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 sucks and I obviously don't agree with the rules, but yeah she can't. She, we've we've got to follow the punishment line here, but it's interesting like Usada just to well over the last few days is sort of going on this little publicity apology tour saying we've been saying forever that we should lighten up on marijuana and it's you know this these rules are too strong and it actually makes me crazy it actually drives me insane because <laughs> because it's Usada's fault that Wada. It really took such a hard stand on it in the first place. It was back during the 90s and 80s right. that they, you know, kind of convinced the rest of the world that that weed is bad and, and is a controlled substance in this, that and the other thing and, and that we should have, you know, strong laws against it. It sends a bad you know, um, influence to the kids. Like, like the kids know that that runner is smoking weed. Like she's not doing it on camera. It's like, sorry, it obviously makes me totally insane. But um, so it's interesting that that USADA is now on this this little apology tour saying, oh, well, we've been saying the, the rules need to change. It's very Steve Urkel. Like, did I do that? Like, yeah, you did actually. And you set world standards now. That all comes from United States prohibitionist attitudes. And so um, I feel for Shikari, it's an insane, arcane, draconian reality that she's living through right now. And it's unfortunately one that um, I understand that like quote unquote rules are rules and, and technically, um, you know, race doesn't have anything to do with this, but it does. Like honestly, her getting caught for smoking weed um, a lot more people are going to have a lot harsher opinions against it versus if it was someone that looked like me. And I think we honestly have to be, we have to be honest and frank about that. Like it's not because of race, but race plays a factor in how all of this is perceived. And she's performing for an audience that frankly, I don't know. She's, I just, I feel really bad for her. And I hope that this spurs some actual change. But again, we're like at this crossroads where they're never going to do it unless it's, legal federally right. and that was the most and this is kind of my last point <laughs> i'll check back in in a sec but the interesting thing is that they could have usada and wada could have just said well it's federally illegal in the united states and therefore that's why she can't do it it's a controlled substance but they didn't that would have been such an easy out instead they spouted all this mumbo jumbo about performance enhancing drugs and it's like you didn't have credibility before, but now you especially don't have credibility. You didn't even take the easy layup that illegality gives you. <laughs> well, that's right. And I, and I get that. And Lord knows bureaucracy and organizations like the U.S. Anti-Doping Association or the World Anti-Doping Association um, have to abide by their standards. But I just think it's interesting. They Those two organizations exist because athletes were using steroids 
performance enhancing drugs to enhance their performance. Now the debate goes, and this is a fascinating debate, is cannabis performance enhancing or performance inhibiting? And it all depends on who you talk to, Jackie. It does. It, right? Because I know athletes that have played NFL football games admitted it after their careers are over that they played under the influence of cannabis to sure. deal with the pain rather than take a Percocet or a Vicodin before a game. Matt Barnes, the um, ex-Warrior player, you know, ex-NBA player, he I quoted him in my newsletter in my article last week about this. Um, he was like, like fully, there's the quote in my article. He goes, yeah, I had a 15 year long career in the NBA. I used, I smoked weed the entire time. I timed my drug, my use to my drug tests. They were very predictable. And I'm like, does everyone do that? And he's like, yes, everyone smokes weed. <laughs> NFL, NBA, golf, you name it. They're all smoking lots of weed. Like everyone's, not everyone smokes weed, but a lot of people smoke weed. And so, yeah, it's this performance. But then there were also studies that came out last year that said um, THC and cannabis use can actually impair heart function. And I know that was really controversial last year and the science is a little shaky on that, but there is really some truth to it. And if you are doing strenuous activity, you know, intaking cannabis actually can be harmful to you. And so there's a whole, and, th and then it becomes, what does performance enhancing mean? Does it mean like a steroid, you know, that, um, you know, it, it allows you when you're in process of, of running or in, in the athletic process of actually having a boost in your physical performance or is lessening your stress and pain after let's say a game and then let's say that helps in your aftercare, does that then become performance enhancing because it sets you up better for the next game? That's a, those are really big questions, right? And I would argue, sure, maybe in the latter, that's performance enhancing, but then so is Advil, right. uh, so is water. So, you know, it's it's kind of like- Caffeine, where caffeine is not on that list, caffeine. right? Caffeine? caffeine is another excellent example. And so I did also, um, I quoted the um, NBA commissioner from last year in my piece in a statement that he made where, um, the NBA decided to suspend drug testing for marijuana in the 2020-2021 season. And they said, you know, due to the um, extraordinary circumstances of COVID, we've decided like, we're just going to focus on performance enhancing drugs and drugs that pose a risk to our athletes. Well, so the NBA is saying that it's not performance enhancing and that it also isn't unhealthy, which was one of the other reasons USADA gave for um, their ban on, on marijuana cannabis. So you have multi organization, multiple organizations and regulating agencies in the professional sports world directly contradicting one another. And I mean, to me, as the emperor has no clothes, that is the clearest sign. These are supposed to be the authorities and they're literally contradicting each other. So right. not, not surprising. And it's so funny, even amongst the cannabis community, uh, when we talk about uh, the effect of different strains, and we had this conversation recently in, 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 our, in our office meetings, if you will, and we talked about how can you how can you review a strain at a dispensary, knowing that whether it's a hybrid, an indica, a sativa, how it affects you, Jackie, is going to be different than how it affects me, because each one of our endocannabinoid systems is different. And that's the whole point of this plant is the balancing aspect of it, 
with an internal system that every mammal has. So I keep saying, it's like, well, you can tell me that this is the greatest strain of all time. And I could take a couple of hits and it don't, don't do shit to me. Absolutely. Who, who's right here, right? I, exactly. Certain right sativas don't really get me high, for example. And certain sativas actually make me feel really swollen. And my eyes kind of like feel swollen. And I don't get really high, but I just feel like I'm like retaining water. And it's very uncomfortable. And then, you know, also it's not just THC, that's the main compound here. I mean, we have terpenes and flavonoids and all sorts of other things that affect our experience and our high and those are again, completely subjective. So, and we have such a lack of understanding of how this all comes together materialized. We have, of course, the term, the entourage effect, but that's very nebulous. And so even among, you know, our community, there is a lack of understanding of how this all exactly works. And so it's, it's, it's interesting. I just don't understand how you could make a determination um, beyond that. Right. And they seem to have done that, obviously. And it's, I don't know, it just blows my mind. It's so antithetical to the way I think about things that sometimes I forget kind of what planet I'm living on. <laughs> and you've been on the cannabis beat. Walk us a little bit through your career as a freelance writer uh, in California. And I, always kid to Californians, you know, that it's a, it's a completely different planet out in California. It, it is. just is. The people are different. The lifestyle's different. The weather's different, the whole nine yards. And it's a very progressive state. And yet there are people again in the cannabis community who believe that the state has really screwed up the legal adult use recreational market. Can you walk us through a little bit about how and why this might've happened in California? Sure. And I, I consider myself among those who, who think that California really screwed it up. I mean, it is the largest legal cannabis market on planet Earth, and it should be the crown jewel and shining example. But right now, I believe it's about three something billion dollars in the legal market and about four, uh, I think estimates are like 11, 12 billion for the illegal black legacy market. And so obviously, California had the biggest black market of, of them all when we were coming here. So it was always going to be a biggest a, a big hurdle to overcome that, right? And it's going to be for many, many, many years. But the fact that the illegal market is only still growing and the legal market is still severely handicapped by rules, regulations, and taxes is, um, it's a big problem and it should be a cautionary tale for other states and countries that are legalizing. So there are a few things. Um, number one, and I, you know, I, do, I want to state off the top that I am, my politics are, are quite left, left of left actually, but this is one instance where taxation, it, it's just not working. I mean, the um, level of permitting fees and taxes that are levied on cultivators and distributors alike at every stage of the cultivation and sales process. I mean, you have a canopy tax, you have a tax on this, you need a license. If you have two greenhouses next to one another on your on your grow property, you need to transfer to transfer a plant from one to the other, you need a transfer license. That's about $2,000. Just to pick up one plant and bring it to your greenhouse 15 feet away. It's taxed and permitted at every level of the business because it's a controlled substance. I tell you, alcohol, I used to report on, on booze, it's definitely not like this. It's, it's the most regulated substance on earth, which is interesting because it's also half illegal, right? So um, that's, one, that's one layer of it. And, and the law was really designed to 
appease a lot of interest in order to get it passed, which that's politics, right? But you know, the, a cut has to be given to law enforcement, which pissed off a lot of the cannabis community here because they're like, these dudes are lo were locking us up last year and now we have to give them money from our sales. And then, you know, law enforcement's like, well, we need money to enforce. They have enough, but we have to make everyone happy, right? So that's how that happened. So you have this, this, this high barrier to entry that these small mom and pop growers up north, let's say in the Emerald Triangle, I mean, how are they going to get several hundred thousand dollars of permitting fees, especially when they're coming off the back of being illegal for so long? And, and some people have been jailed. So the that right off the top is sort of designed and, and the compliance required to stay permitted and stay legal and not get into trouble. These are all things that a corporation would have the money and manpower to handle really well, but a small grower isn't really going to. So right there, you have something that favors sort of the big companies versus the little mom and pop operators who of course got cannabis cultivation started in the United States period. Then you have the issue of, of what's called local control, which is a provision in Prop 64, which is the law that legalized adult use um, marijuana cultivation sales in California, just to remind everybody. But um, so Prop 64 is local control, which means that even it, though the state's voters ratified this proposition, um, and, and, you know, have unanimously, well, not unanimously, but 60-40 about said we want weed in the state, um, individual municipalities can say no. And so um, they can either vote on it or their city councils can vote on it. It, it totally depends where you are. So, so cities, counties, towns, unincorporated areas, they all have the option to say no. So I would say about 70% of the land mass of California right now is actually not legal to buy or sell cannabis in, which is interesting because everyone's like, oh, weed's legal in California. So you have that issue of local control. And so I'll try to wrap this up. I know I'm rambling. Okay. Kind of my favorite topic though. I kind of love I was gonna it. Say, it's, a big can it's a big topic. <laughs> it's a big state and there's a lot of layers a lot. there are and um so with local control that means that the number of licenses is severely capped and only certain people can get them and it totally depends where you are how you're going to get them how easy it is or not desert hot springs for example is very liberal and lets everybody have a license and there's almost no regulation whereas the city of chula vista which is just south of san diego proper um you know, their licensing process has been held up for three years. They only have one dispensary up. So when there's an absence of licensing, people don't have access to cannabis. And so what do they do? They don't go find the nearest legal dispensary. They call their dude and say, hey, are you still in business? I need weed. And that is in a nutshell, exactly why California's illegal market is booming and its legal market is struggling. It's, it's, intentional handicapping by individual municipalities because you know it's a drug so they want to control it and control the number of licenses and it's i mean it's very classic liberal economics here like if you want these businesses to thrive you need to open up the market and stop controlling it so much so and, and what it proves to me more than anything else jackie is that the people that are making the laws and i'm not talking about the lawyers that write the ballot questions i'm talking about the legislators who get this ballot question, it's approved by the people, then it's up to them to figure out a way to regulate it. And they miscalculated. The main reason a lot of people either were pro-cannabis or anti-cannabis, the first reaction I always felt was, well, it's illegal. I don't want to do anything that's illegal. And then, of course, 
you know, there are those out there that say, well, I don't, no one's going to see me do it. So I'm just going to do it and experiment and see. And wow, this is pretty. What's all this fuss about? This is pretty good. I like the way I feel. Matter of fact, I'm getting more sleep. Matter of fact, the inflammation of my body's going down. And I don't feel having like the ability the to. Day. That's a big one. I don't get fat from it, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. The other one, uh, sleep and weight loss, right? Those are the two biggies in the, in the, in, in most people's, um, um, dealings with trying to figure out a way to get uh, thinner or uh, get get better sleep. That that being said, they thought that as soon as it became illegal, people that had been using it illegally would immediately come over to the legal side because it's tested and they don't have to worry about carrying it anymore. They miscalculated the shrewdness of the cannabis user. This is the, doing it illegally forever. Right? Right. They've been doing it illegally for 20, 30 years, however long they've been using it. You're going to tell me, oh, now that's legal, I'm going to go to this store and pay twice as much or, or you know, two and a half times as much extra on your on your sticker price here. Thirty five percent extra in San Diego County. Right. Just because it's legal and tested and they miscalculated the fact that, oh, maybe we shouldn't have made it so regulated and have so many taxes on it. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Needless to say, we haven't even gotten into interstate commerce, which Ooh. I maintain, I hope they do not do, only because it allows for great talk and, and stories and one state's doing it this way and the other state's doing it this way. And what is going to be the right way is only going to be decided by the market and the market continues to grow. And the fastest growing demographic in that market are the 50 plus people out there yeah. who are just looking for ways to deal with their aches, their pains to improve their wellness, right? Yes. And, and, and yes, the numbers do support that. And, you know, interestingly, so I, I totally agree with you in that, like people who've been using cannabis forever, they're not suddenly going to like, Ooh, it's legal. I'm going to shop legal now. But the segment that you did just mention the 55 plus, they are actually trying it out more now because it is legal. And, right. uh, and, and so it's interesting. So I grew up, my dad is 71 years old. I'm 35. And I grew up with my dad always smoking weed. And it was never like something that we talked about. But as I became a teenager, I was like, oh yeah, dad rolls his own cigarettes. They're not cigarettes. Got it. So like, I had like this kind of background consciousness. It was never sensationalized. But so I, I you know, I talked to him about it a lot. And then I talked to my mom and her friends and a lot of them have said, actually, yeah, now that I know it's legal, now that I know I can get these little gummies and they're perfectly dosed, I feel comfortable doing it. It, it That legality thing really does make it more socially acceptable. And it does switch a, switch a flip inside certain people's brains. For me, I personally am not really a rules person. And so if it's legal, I'm like, I want it. Now I have to have it if I can't have it. But a lot of people aren't like that and do actually like to follow the rules and are, you know, you know, maybe better citizens and, and, and that makes them feel good. And so the fact that it is legal really does bring more people in. And especially that age group who, you know, grew up in the prime time of, you know, I don't have to tell you, but grew up in the prime time of reefer madness. Right. And, and you're steeped in all of this. And, and I had it too. I went, I had to go to dare classes when I was like, so the fact that it is legal does, um, I think, bring more people into it, especially that age group. It even, it even catches me. Like sometimes I, 
catch myself in, you know, outside of my weed circles or, or in more traditional journalism circles are kind of like making jokes about, yeah, I'm a weed journalist. And then I'm like, why? It's completely valid. It's, it's, it's now a legal industry where I live and it's a completely valid thing, but I have to catch my own thing. So I, I do think that that legalization um, for a certain kind of consumer, it's never going to change anything, but especially for those who really do respect the rule of law and, and find that to be virtuous, um, it does bring them in. And I think the dosing is really important. Um, legalization now means that edibles have become an entry-level product which is really 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 funny to me <laughs> because edibles used to be the domain of the hardcore right they were the wild wild west because you like never really 100 percent knew what you were getting so you had to be ready to go on a ride um now they're totally dialed in and you can go and have your five milligram bedtime gummy and right. people dosing is key. So that's another key to normalizing it that only legalization could have brought. So, and I think that's key for that demographic too. I know that um, older folks definitely, you know, combustion isn't healthy and having a little edible gummy, it's, well, it is more. So <laughs> right. it, it's interesting to see how that like plays out with different kinds of consumers. And I can't tell you how happy I am to know that your dad is older than me. Okay. I just want to say <laughs> <laughs> Not by many years, but he's older than me. I'm 63. My mom is 60. Yeah, my mom is 63. She was born in 58. 62, 63. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. No, 58. I'm 57, you know, 1957. Okay. So, you know, I, I get that. Um, Jackie, you have a newsletter and it's got such a unique name. How did you come up with the Cannabitch? <laughs> um, so I, the Cannabitch is now, yes, a newsletter um, on the Substack platform. Uh, prior to that, it was a print column for a few years in San Diego City Beat, which is our now shuttered alt-weekly newspaper, very beloved in this town. Um, but uh, some Arizonan overlords took it over and, and, and killed it as is happening to small papers throughout the country, right? Um, so it was, that was called Cannabitch and I had a little bit of good following. So I decided to um, turn it into a newsletter, but the name came about, oh my God, it was years ago, kind of, you know, before the the glut of canna everything or, you know, alliterative or, or you know, cutesy cannabis names were as widespread as they are now. And <laughs> um, so I remember it was my editor and I, we were um, out to dinner talking about the column and drinking a lot of mezcal actually. And we were like, what should we call it? And we just had a list of names that were all punny cannabis names. And we were just like, Canada, cannabis, can cannabis. I was like, oh my God, would you do that? And you know, it's an alt weekly. There are supposed to be irreverent newspapers, right? right. And he was like, yes. And so it just kind of stuck. It kind of took off. Um, it's become a little bit of a moniker, which is not something I necessarily lean into, but I also don't shy away with it. When people refer to me as the cannabis, I'm like, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's uh, so yeah, I can shock people because it has a curse in it, which I sometimes forget. Um, but I personally don't really believe in bad words. It's not really a concept I subscribe to. So yeah, I guess it's sort of like taking things that were previously that are maybe shocking and salacious to some the idea of weed, the ca calling yourself a bitch, 
and um, maybe just reclaiming that and, and, and making it kind of regular and hopefully irreverent and a little informal. Like you can learn a lot from my newsletter. I talk about the intersection of cannabis and culture. My whole thing is like, oh, here's an idea. What's the weed angle on that? Um, and so it's taking everyday subjects and kind of putting the weed spin on it. And, and I hope that the name, you know, kind of reflects that, that you'll learn a lot here, but it's also, it's and, a fun place too. <laughs> and, and, and I love how it brought us together when you wrote about uh, getting lobsters, my favorite food, high, uh, and wrote about the Southwest Harbor group that was doing that. And I, I just thought it was brilliant. And that's why I reached out to you. And I'm so happy now that we're going to be working together on We Talk News. You're going to be our California, California correspondent. We're so excited about that. And I really want to thank you for um, just making it work because I, I couldn't have picked a better person out there who has such a unique view on what is going on in that crazy, crazy state that they call California. It is crazy. And thank you. I'm super happy to be on board and that we connected. And also because, and we talked about this privately, but I am from New York. I've only been in California for seven years, which feels like a lifetime, but also isn't at the same time. Right. And I, I deeply identify with being from New York and Long Island. And I mean, that's like who I am. So it's, it's nice to bring kind of the East Coast into my California weed life because they've been very separate up until now. And it's been exciting for me to have the East Coast legalizing because I'm, you know, I went to college in Connecticut, a small, I went to Connecticut College, a small liberal arts college. And it's been fun seeing people that I used to smoke weed with back in college kind of like pop up and around and be like, whoa, you live in California and you're writing about weed. I work for, you know, this dispensary in Massachusetts. And I'm like, this is awesome. I love it. It makes me so happy. So this is an added layer to that. New England, I went to school there again. Like, I consider it, you know, kind of a second home of mine. So it's a really nice connection. <laughs> well, we, uh, we are going to uh, continue to document the connections of cannabis coast to coast. And, uh, and, we look, and we look forward to that. How do people sign up for your newsletter? Cannabitch.substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. And that's Cannabitch, C-A-N-N-A bitch. Um, you can also find me all over the internet. I am for better or worse, very Googleable. Jackie Bryant, type in Jackie Bryant weed. You'll find me. <laughs> so I, I hope to see you there. It's free to sign up. I have some sponsorships, which allows um, me to keep the price low or to have free subscribers. Um, I'm just happy to have readers. Um, it's a really fun time. Like I said, we talk about all the, all the weird and interesting ways that weed pops up in your everyday consciousness um, and things hopefully you haven't thought of or, you know, ranting about things like marijuana bans in, in the Olympics and stuff like that. So I, I think it's something that anybody with a remote interest in weed can get into. There you go. Well, that's Jackie Bryant. Don't call her the cannabitch. Remember, it's her newsletter, cannabitch, right? Technically, yes. I am happy to have any attention on it whatsoever. But yeah, technically, it's the publication name. But there you go. For, for Jackie Bryant, I'm Jimmy Young from Pro Cannabis Media. Remember, it's a whole new world of weed out there. Use it responsibly. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. 
Weed Talk and In the Weeds are two productions of pro-cannabis media supported by Revolutionary Clinics, one of the top medical cannabis dispensaries in the Massachusetts area, now with three locations in Greater Boston, two in Cambridge, and one on Broadway in Somerville. Rev Clinics has a patient-first mission. They will customize your needs as a medical patient with the proper titration and combination of strains, flavors, and products. Rev Clinics, where the patient comes first. Hi, I'm Ben Shower, New England rep for Salient Video Management Systems. Let me tell you what makes us different in the security space. We're your trusted advisors for all your security needs. I know how complicated the regulations are in cannabis, and working with Salient Systems will be the polar opposite of that. I give free consultations and we'll walk you through every step of the process so that you can get what you need at the price you can afford. We're robust, we're simple and scalable. We're Salient Systems, your solutions to all your security needs. Please contact me at the information below and I'm looking forward to being your trusted advisor. Cannabis Media Programming is available live and on demand on our Facebook page at ProCanna Media, on Instagram at ProCannabis Media, on LinkedIn also at ProCannabis Media, on YouTube and YouTube Live on ProCannabis Media, Twitter at ProCanna Media, and on twitch.tv backslash ProCannabis Media. So like, share, and subscribe to all of our content, newsletters, and shows live or on demand. We are Pro Cannabis Media.